to also tell you, please take that with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We'd love for you to have that one, and that's what it's there for. Page 925 for this morning. Uh, while you're flipping over there, let me take this opportunity to wish you all a happy new year. Hope you had a great Christmas. Hope you had some good time off. Hope you got everything that you wanted on your Christmas list. We certainly had, uh, well, I maybe didn't get everything I wanted, but we had a good time off. and We had a great Christmas, a great chance to be with family uh, out of state. Uh, I wonder, though, I wonder if you started to feel it yet. I'm not talking about stomach issues you might be feeling from too much holiday junk food. I have certainly felt those. I've been off all week just between us. Uh, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about what's known as the post-holiday blues. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The letdown from another holiday come and gone. That, 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 that sinking sensation that... What you once had to look forward to, what had been carrying you through whatever you didn't want to be dealing with, it came and it went and it left you right back where you started. You know what I'm talking about? Are you feeling it yet? There's no question in my mind that's a real phenomenon. And I'm also convinced that phenomenon of the post-holiday blues has two really important lessons to teach us. One is that it is incredible what a difference it makes to your outlook when you've got something to look forward to. (laughs) When there's something else that's coming that you're excited about, that can change how you see everything around you. You're less bothered by annoying problems at work. Maybe you're less likely to be bickering with your brother or your sister around the house. You know, even, even those who are facing terminal illness often comment on how much lift they get, how much relief at thinking ahead to another Christmas with the people they love most. It's incredible what a difference it makes to have something to look forward to. But the second lesson from the post-holiday blues is more sobering. What we really need is not just something to look forward to. We need something to look forward to that won't leave us right back where we started. Maybe you got an outfit that you were really excited about, but now you're realizing when you look in the mirror, it didn't change what you see. I got an awesome pullover. I plan to be wearing that thing probably into my 50s, I mean, way past the point where it'll embarrass my kids. But and I put that thing on, it looks fine as, you know, just holding it up. But you guess what? Underneath, I'm still just as out of shape as I already was. It hadn't put a single hair back up on this bald head or take away any of the gray in the beard. I'm still me underneath that new shirt. Maybe you had a blast not going to school the last couple of weeks, huh, kids? Dealing with homework and stress and, you know, kids who make things tough for you. But tomorrow is right back to all that reading and writing and arithmetic. We had a wonderful week last week, visiting family in Alabama. But you know what happened to me this week? All that stuff at work that was stressing me out before we left that I was so happy to set aside for just a few days, was waiting for me when I got back in the office. Can you relate? You know what I'm talking about? It makes all the difference to have something to look forward to. That'll change your outlook on everything. But what we need is something that won't come and go and leave us right back where we started. We need hope. But what we hope in, that matters. It matters above all. So, Welcome to a new sermon series on the hope of heaven. 
and the difference it makes for our lives as Christians in the meantime. We're going to spend the next eight weeks, the first eight weeks of this new year, in a mini-series that's going to take us through many different passages in the Bible that are all aimed at helping you answer one simple question. What is the hope of heaven to your life as a Christian? What is the hope of heaven to your life as a Christian? Hopefully on your way in, when you grabbed your worship guide, you also saw one of these little sermon cards. It's got the whole thing laid out for you with what text will cover when, what the subject will be, and, and hopefully you can place this on your fridge or in your Bible and just remember it, not so just to read ahead, but to pray that the Lord will bless it as we work through these themes week by week. You know, normally around here, we, we, we take a, a, a text, a whole section of scripture and just work through it verse by verse. And that's going to be our normal. Uh, it always will be. We'll get right back into that after this eight-week mini-series. But sometimes it's helpful to take a theme that you'll find all over the Bible and to track that theme in the places that the Bible talks about it and to hold it up, to look at it really carefully because of how important it is, how, how much it touches in every other part of your life. That's what we're going to do together in answering this question uh, over the next eight weeks. And it's a question that flows directly from Paul's words at the beginning of what might be his most beautiful and most comprehensive text on what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus. I want to ask you to stand with me now as I read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. You can be seated. Throughout the course of this chapter, Colossians chapter 3, Paul talks about the stuff of life. He covers massive ground. He talks about envy. He talks about idolatry. He talks about anger and he talks about slander. He talks about kindness and compassion and patience and forgiveness. He talks about sex. He talks about marriage. He talks about parenting. But every bit of the portrait from what sins to put off and what virtues to put on, from how we love one another to how we hold, handle ourselves at church and at home and at work, all of it, Paul says, flows from a mind that's set on things above. In these few verses, what Paul is doing is he's taking and placing at the center of the Christian life intentional, disciplined, cultivated focus on heaven. He's placing intentional, disciplined, cultivated focus on heaven right at the center. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like your experience of the Christian life? I've become as convinced as I can be that heaven suffers from a serious brand problem these days. I think for, for some, the idea of heaven seems kind of lame, <laughs> if they were honest. One writer summed it up. Like, Our ancestors were afraid of hell. We're afraid of heaven. <laughs> we think it'll be boring. Maybe you know better than to except cliches that are out there about chubby angels playing harps in the clouds, but, but maybe you don't have any more relatable images to fall back on, and you're thinking, 
why would I want to be at a worship service that never ends? I mean, I've got an hour and a half a week in me, but eternity's a long time. For other people, I think the thought of heaven feels maybe a little bit wrong. As if, you know, as if, as if it's an either-or relationship between, between longing for heaven over here and loving the world as we know it now with all those precious people, with all of their serious problems. You know, Heavenly-minded has been a, an age-old knock on, on, on people who are no earthly good. You've heard that saying, haven't you? And so maybe, I mean, I've heard Christians in my generation speak of heavenly-mindedness like that, like, like cover for a kind of indifference, really, and an inaction towards those who are hurting and need help. Isn't it self-indulgent to look ahead to some sort of eternal world of bliss when there are real people really suffering all around you right now? I think for some people, the notion of heaven can seem a little bit pitiful, almost more like, like loss than like gain. You know, as if, as if heaven, the idea of some other life in some other world means the end of things we love now in this world. And this world has so much to offer that we do enjoy and are right to enjoy. Why should I long to be in another world when I got so much left to live for in this world? But my sense is, I mean, more than any of that, my sense is that, that many Christians simply aren't thinking about heaven at all. And if asked, just couldn't really say why they should. I mean, maybe it makes sense to you why an 83-year-old widow with terminal cancer might long for heaven. But what about a 23-year-old law student in her second year? What about a 33-year-old engineer with his first kid on the way? What is heaven to that guy? Is any of this resonating with you? Let me ask you again. What is the hope of heaven to your life as a Christian? How does your future affect your day-to-day Sadly, uh, friends, I'm just convinced, as I can be, that we tend to view heaven, when we're thinking about it at all, the way we view our car insurance. You know, it's something we know we need to have, but God forbid we ever have to use it. (laughs) The best thing about having car insurance is not having to think about car insurance. The peace of mind that keeps it off your radar until the moment you need it. And in that moment, it's disaster. (laughs) Meanwhile, your focus stays fixed on the car. You know, what, what, what style you like best, what features you need, how you want to use it, where you want to drive in it. But, but friends, as the Bible talks about heaven, it's not like an insurance policy that you pay for, then file away and forget about, hopefully, as long as possible. The Bible talks about he- heaven as, a, as an inheritance. That's its word. An inheritance that you are sure to receive if you're a Christian. And beyond that, an inheritance that you can draw on for real life right now. The, heaven functions more like a trust fund in the scriptures. Something that's fully funded, something that's certain, something that's already freely accessible while you wait for faith to turn to sight. And what I want to do in these eight weeks is help you see the incredible riches that are stored away in that trust fund and how to draw on them day by day for the life you're living in the meantime. That's the goal for these eight weeks, taking a different passage on the hope of heaven each week and applying that passage to life in the meantime. And one more thing I want to say before we take up uh, our text for this morning from Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to make it as clear as I can be, at least in a summary way, what I mean by the word heaven. 
I know there's a lot of confusion about that word sometimes. I, I still think it's worth using because it's the most common word we've got out there and the Bible uses it sometimes and, and, and you're probably used to using it. So we may as well just claim it and then try to be clear about what we mean by it. So let me do that right now. What I mean by heaven is not some sort of spiritual place as opposed to the material world we live in now. And the Bible's promise is that this material world gets made new. I'm not talking about a bodiless cloud land, in other words, where souls fly away when we die. I mean, when I use heaven, I mean the world to come as opposed to the world as it is. I'm talking about the world to come, and all the things God has promised us about that world, as opposed to the world as it is now, in all of its beauty and brokenness mixed together. I'm talk, when I use heaven, I'm talking about the sum total of all that the Bible has to say about all that God has promised his people for their ultimate future. Sometimes it's described as a new heavens and a new earth because what's coming is gonna be so far removed from the brokenness of this world, it might as well be a brand new way to begin. Other times the Bible talks about it as a renewal of everything because because it is going to wonderfully expand on all the things we love best about this world. This is a world God made. This is a world God loves, and it's a world he's going to renew. But most important of all, when the Bible talks about heaven, what's right at the center of it, at that world to come, is the promise that God will be there. I mean, the Bible, heaven is almost synonymous with God himself, because all of its glory, everything good about it, comes from the fact that his presence is right there, direct, unmediated, unfiltered for us to enjoy forever. It is the presence of God that makes heaven what it is. It is his presence that makes heaven a world of more, more happiness and more holiness, fullness of joy forever, an eternal world of love. And it's the presence of God that makes heaven a world of no more, because in God's presence, there's no room for sin. There's no room for sorrow. There's no room for death. And every tear gets wiped away because God will wipe those tears away. And there will never be another reason for crying ever again. God's presence is a place where all things are made new. That's what I mean by heaven. I have all of that in mind. And I think Paul does too. When he says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above on where Christ is and on what Christ will bring to you when he appears. So, why? Why does Paul put that command at the foundation of the Christian life? Why should we set our minds on things above? That's what I want to talk about for the next bit of our time, the rest of our time this morning, that is. I see three reasons. And they're going to frame up everything else that follows in this series. Three reasons to set your mind on heaven. Here's number one. Set your mind on heaven because hope is essential. Set your mind on heaven because hope is essential. No one can live without hope. You just simply cannot survive without it. What we want or expect out of our future has a huge effect on our experience in the meantime. I know we're not the only creatures out there in the world that have an eye on what's coming. You know, birds build nests in the springtime because they know they're expecting to have little babies. 
And squirrels bury their nuts in the yard in the fall because they know they're going to need them later. Bears store up fat for winter hibernation. But the bears and the squirrels and the birds, they're just operating on instinct. They just do what they do in order to survive. Humans alone have hopes and dreams. Humans alone imagine opportunities to crave and possibilities to fear. We humans, we train for careers and, and we plan for families and we save for retirement and we buy insurance on our houses and on our cars and on our bodies and even on our lives. Only humans make conscious choices now in the hope or in the dread of what might be later. So the question for you guys is not, is not whether your view of the future is shaping your life today. The question is, which view of the future is shaping your life today? What effect is your view of the future having on your life today? What future imagined is functionally controlling your present? When Paul says that your life is hidden with Christ in God, verse 3 What he means is that for the Christian, your life is attached to Jesus. What Jesus went through when he died, you went through in him. You died. Your sins have been punished and taken care of forever. And what he has now, you will have. Your life is now defined by the glory he already has where he is. And and, and you will be with him where he has gone to prepare a place for you. Because your life is attached to Jesus, your future is as certain as Jesus' present. That's what Paul means when he says that your life is hidden with Christ in God. But for now, what we experience is a long way from glory. Paul's telling them your true life, your ultimate life, your final future is hidden. In Christ. Because when you look around now, when you look at what your life feels like, looks like now, what you're going to see will often be bleak. The glory that, that defines us as Christians is veiled now, just as Christ was when he lived on earth. And what we're going to see is shame and suffering and sorrow and eventually death. You need to know that your life is not defined by what you see now, but by what you would see if you could see Jesus now and what you will see when, you, when Jesus appears again. That's what Paul's saying when he says your life is hidden. Here's what he's getting at and why it matters so much to set your mind on heaven. Whatever your hope is in life is going to get absolutely pounded by life. Whatever you rest your life on is going to get hit by wave after wave after wave that you can't stop and that a false hope cannot survive. You won't be able to face up to life in this world unless your life, your true life, is hidden in Christ, untouchable, indestructible, not vulnerable. Because without a hope from beyond this world, your hope won't survive. Life can be brutal. And if you live long enough, friends, I know so many of you are young and maybe haven't tasted much of this yet. I haven't compared to so many friends that I have and and family members that I've watched live long lives. But if you live long enough, one way or another, life will be brutal for you. 
And when Jesus said, when Jesus said to, to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, his reasoning for that was what happens to all the treasures we lay up for here on earth. He said, lay it up there because up there, moths don't destroy. They don't eat things away. It won't get consumed. And rust can't eat away at what's protected there. Thieves can't steal it up there. You know why he's saying that? Because everything you hope on in this life will get destroyed, can get stolen, will eventually decay and, and disappear. There is a baseline of brokenness, in other words, to our lives under death that nobody can escape. And the only way to face up to it is with a hope that's untouchable by it. You need a clear view of where all of this is headed if you want to carry on, no matter what, along the way. Set your mind on heaven because hope is essential. That's point one. Here's point two. Set your mind on heaven because diversion is easier. Hope is essential. You can't live without it. But diversion from heaven and all that we hope for in it, that comes a lot easier than thinking on heaven. I think that's why Paul has to command us to set our minds on things above. It'd be so much easier not to. I don't have to tell my kids to finish their ice cream, do I, boys? They're great at that, all on their own initiative. I do have to take them to, tell them to take five bites of their cauliflower soup every time we have it. Focus on heaven is a lot more like eating cauliflower than like eating ice cream. It's better for us. It's more nourishing. Builds strength. Builds our resistance to all kind of infection. There's vitamins in focusing on heaven. But it is so much less attractive so much of the time than other options that compete for our attention and our affection. It just is. And without God's spirit at work in us, the affections of our hearts, the allure of, of everything around us in our environment, that's going to constantly take our minds and aim them at the things on earth that Paul warns us not to be distracted by. We are just going to be relentlessly biased towards false hopes that we can see and touch and control, that, but that won't possibly be able to satisfy us. They can't possibly save us and won't live longer than we do. They just can't. So how do you stay focused on what's unseen and what's eternal when what's seen and, what, and what's temporary is just so present and so powerful? Friends, that, that, that driving concern is what lies behind one of the most important books on heaven that's ever written, certainly in the English language, a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest by a, by a minister from England named Richard Baxter, written in 1650. It's old. This is a copy of an updated edition that I strongly recommend to you because it's abridged, cut down from 1,000 pages to less than 200, and the language is updated so that the likes of us can track with it much more easily. Richard Baxter was a pastor in England during the English Civil War, a brutal time full of carnage for many people living in that country. He himself served in the army as a chaplain and saw many of his friends killed during battle. Soon after, or even just as that war was, was, was carrying on and, and towards wrapping up, he had a terrible near-death experience, an illness that, that should have killed him, almost did. It was during that time 
that he began to realize how important, how life-shaping it is to have a cultivated, disciplined focus on heaven for getting through the things that we face here on earth. And then shifting from that time in the war into a pulpit that he filled for, for about 12 or 13 years, he began to realize just how little the people that he was pastoring were thinking about heaven. No matter how bad things got on earth, how, how difficult it was for them to pay attention to anything beyond this world and what they could see right around them. So he wrote the book to try to help Christians overcome the difficulty all of us have in doing what Paul calls us to do right here. He wrote it to help them learn how to meditate on heaven as a spiritual discipline. Because it's not, the problem he found, it's not that Christians deny that heaven is real, that there's such a place, or even that they doubt they'll go there themselves someday. The problem, he found, is a gap between the head, what you say is true, and the heart, what you experience as true daily. And here's how he put it in his 17th century way. When truth is apprehended only as truth, this is but an unsavory and loose apprehension. When it is apprehended as good as well as true, this is a solid and delightful apprehending. In other words, you need to not just... Say it's true. You need to know it's true in your heart, in your gut. You need to feel it's truth and to experience it's truth so that it shapes your life. It takes discipline. It takes discipline. It takes effort. It takes focus to see the goodness in what is not yet seen. To see God's promise for our future as good as well as true. Baxter, his whole book is arguing that that meditation is how we we take what we understand and use it to warm up our affections. We take what goes into the mind and work on our hearts until we feel something about it. Meditation, he says, throws open the door between the head and the heart. It's simply, he says, reading over and repeating God's reasons, things that are said here in the word, to our hearts and so disputing with ourselves on his argument and his terms. In other words, it just involves using the judgment, our thinking, to compare the allure of the world and all it offers to the promises of heaven and all it offers until the scale tips toward heaven and away from the world. And that's the work that I want to try to do with you, sermon by sermon throughout these series. But I'll be honest, and I think it's worth saying this right here and right now. Even though my goal in this series is to do something like what Baxter did in his book back in the 17th century, I want to do it for you guys, for for me here in the 21st century, because we got barriers to meditation that Baxter could not have even imagined 400 years ago. I mean, for one thing, compared to people in his time, we are way more insulated from death. Our lives, on average last twice as long as the average lives back then and are full of opportunities for wealth and for comfort and for pleasure that that just weren't on the table for anybody, even the most wealthy of people in Baxter's day. And I'm not complaining. I don't want to trade places with anybody from 1650. I'm real happy right where I am. My house was warm last night by God's grace. That's almost unprecedented in the history of the world. I wouldn't trade places with them. But our, our crazy amounts of prosperity can radically distort our perspective on the world and what stays true, no matter how comfortable we are or how long we may live. Back in Baxter's time, 
I mean, you, you got the sniffles you were worried about dying because you might. In our time, modern medicines, I mean, so many of you in this room, you're skillful doctors, these remarkable technologies you have at your disposal, it makes us pretty much feel like there's always something more to be done to push death back for another day. In Baxter's time, it wasn't like that. In Baxter's time, most people died at home, you know, in the same few square feet that they lived their lives, same places that they had their meals and had their babies. They walked to church through the graves of people who were dear to them. I mean, death was just all around them. And that gave them this, this everyday incentive to look up, to look beyond, to look for something beyond what death can reach. But now when, when we come to die, it's much more often than not in an industrial sanitized facility that's isolated from where we live our lives. It's just, in other words, it's just much more easy for us to live most of our lives as if death is somebody else's problem. And without an urgent awareness that life is just a breath, of course it makes sense that we spend our best effort and, our, and most of our time trying to squeeze as much as we possibly can out of life in this world, here and now. It's harder for us than it was in Baxter's time because we're more insulated from death. You know, we're also more secular than Baxter's time could have imagined. I don't mean that we all deny the existence of God. I'm talking about that our lives day to day don't have to assume God's existence in the same way that they did back then. We don't feel as vulnerable as they did to all sorts of forces around us that we can't control that might hit us at any time. We, don't, we aren't forced to recognize how dependent we are on something beyond ourselves. I mean, think about it, guys. We, we spend so much of our lives surrounded by just absolutely stunning human achievements. We just look at the Nashville skyline. People built these buildings. Look at the cranes out there. Look at what they're working on now. It's amazing. And, and, and besides high-rise buildings, you know, we send rockets to space. We figured out how to do that. And, and besides the space rockets, now we've created artificial intelligence that we made up simply to outpace our own. Like that, that's what our lives are surrounded by right now. Compared to Baxter's world before you know, the Industrial Revolution changed so much, like, we just have an un, unimaginable degree of control over what affects us. If I want to, I could this afternoon have blueberries delivered to my house in January. So in a world like ours, like, even Christians can easily lose sight of the fact that every meal just like every breath comes from above. It takes effort for us to remember our dependence on God. The fact that we answer to God for these lives he's given us. That, that therefore we ought to be looking to God in everything, for everything. We are, we are just more secular now than they were. And, and finally, just one more example of how the deck is stacked against us. That we ought to take stock of. We are just way more distracted. Way more distracted. I don't know that there is a, a, a greater barrier to heavenly mindedness that is, is having more impact on our day to day or that's more typical of our modern time than those smartphones we carry around in our pockets all day, lay on our desks while we're supposed to be working, plug in by our pillows when we go to sleep at night. You know, by some estimates, average adults are spending as many as four to six hours a day scrolling the phone. And you know how that usage goes. It's not like it's four hours solid. 
It's in little spurts here and there, scattered throughout days while we're supposed to be doing other things. If, if, if you spread it out, that basically means all day we're being drawn back over and over to these little screens that we carry in our pocket. That makes it tough to set your mind on anything at all, much less set your mind on things above, like Paul says is so important for your life as a Christian. Do you want your life to be measured by what it is you spend your time looking at on your phone? If it were, what would be the measure of your life? How many fantasy football titles you won? How many limited time deals you grabbed? How many likes you got on that family Christmas photo? How many days in a row you nailed the Wordle challenge? I'm sure it has never been more difficult than it is right now to set your mind on things above. But the stakes are just as high as they've always been. We have so much to gain if we do and so much to lose if we do not. Which brings me to the final reason for Paul's command, the ultimate motivation for everything that follows in this sermon series. I've said that we want to set our minds on heaven because it, hope is essential, cannot live without it. And because diversion is easier, the deck is stacked against us. But the third reason to set your mind on heaven is because Christ is worthy. Because Christ is is worthy. That is Paul's ultimate reason for his command in these verses in Colossians 3. He tells us to set our minds on things above because that's where Christ is, verse 1, seated at the right hand of God. And because that's where you will be with him someday, verse 4. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, verse 1. And verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. He's looking ahead to the time when what Jesus is experiencing now becomes our experience here in a world made new and set free. Christ is there. I mean, it is, I, I just acknowledge this, it is so hard to feel a vested interest in a place that you've never been to before. I get it, guys. It's so hard to want to be somewhere you haven't been. I mean, most years after Christmas, just by contrast, Lindsay and I leave our kids with our parents in Alabama and go to the beach for a couple of days to celebrate our wedding anniversaries. And no offense to our children or to any of you fine people, but those are the two best days of every year, let me tell you. I know from experience exactly what it is to read quietly on the beach all day in winter and to eat at our favorite seafood spots in the evening and along the way whenever we want to have long uninterrupted life-oriented conversations with the one that I love most so when the when the time for one of those trips gets closer I have trouble thinking about anything else like it's just boom locked in how do you set your mind, though, on somewhere you haven't been, on a feast you haven't yet tasted? How do you long for something you haven't experienced yet? And Martin Luther said, we know no more about eternal life than children in the womb of their mother 
know about the world they're about to enter. <laughs> That's bold. And of course, I mean, the Bible does tell us a lot of things about what heaven will be like. We're going to look at some of those. But on the level of our experience, Luther is just spot on. So we need to know this right here. Let me just shoot straight with you. The only way to long for a place that you've never been is to long for the person whose presence makes that place what it is to you. If you haven't been there, the only way to long for it, as we're supposed to, is to long for the person who makes that place what it is. Paul sees our love for heaven as an extension of our love for Jesus. And as long as Jesus is there, we can't possibly be satisfied here. As long as we aren't fully with him here, we'll keep our minds set there. It's love for Jesus, in other words, that that anchors us to a future that we've been promised and that transforms how we live here in the present. It is love that changes our relationship to space and time. I love the way the writer James Baldwin once captured this, this power of love in a beautiful thought experiment. Pretend for just a minute that you are born in Chicago, that you've never been to Hong Kong before, and that until now you've never had even the most remote interest in visiting Hong Kong. Now pretend that somehow, unexpectedly, you cross paths with someone who lives in Hong Kong and you fall in love. What then? Baldwin says, Hong Kong will immediately cease to be a name and become the center of your life. That's what then. Now pretend that your lover returns home and can't get to Chicago. What then? With Paul's words from Colossians 3 in mind, listen to, listen to Baldwin as he drives his point home. Then you will, I assure you, as long as space and time divide you from anyone you love, discover a great deal about shipping routes, airlines, earthquake and famine, disease and war. You'll always know what time it is in Hong Kong for someone you love lives there. And love will simply have no choice but to go into battle with space and time and furthermore, to win. Ultimately, friends, what drives us to set our minds on heaven is the simple fact that Christ is there and life apart from him is not good enough for us. We can't live without him. And one day we won't have to. And until that day, it is love that drives us to gird up our loins and fight the everyday fight of faith. We go to battle against space and time. And that's what we're going to do together in the first two months of this year. I want this sermon series to help you and to help me fight a daily battle with time and space and for a living and life-shaping and everyday hope that nothing can touch. That's where we're going. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we do ask you to help us in our battle for faith, in a world that is still marked by so many things that make life difficult and even impossible. We long for a faith that draws our eyes, our minds, our hearts above and beyond, that gives us fuel for living in this world as it is because we know we belong to the world as it will be. 
Help us by this series to help one another walk in hope. And we pray that you would get the glory you deserve as you stir up in our hearts the love for you that we were made to enjoy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.